This is Adam Hill, minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ. Today is a great day to study the Bible. As you listen to today's message, I pray that you're blessed as we study God's Word together. You can be seated. Church, that sounded wonderful. I had a dream last night. I don't know what this says about me. I had a dream last night that I had to... I was a preacher at a church. It wasn't this one because the stage wasn't the same. I'm not saying I'm leaving. It was a church that I have been at before. I recognized the building. And as a part of me, I needed to get up there, but they were really, really not singing. Like to the point that it was kind of offensive to me. And so I assumed God was offended and decided in my dream I needed to really challenge them. I am thankful that is not the case this morning. (laughs) Y'all sounded beautiful. Um, Really lifted my spirit. Thank you, Kenny and team, and thank you, family, for singing out loud. As you can see, I'm I'm, I'm walking wounded. I had a minor surgery on this hand, a carpal tunnel relief, and then a, a, a relief a release of a trigger finger, a finger that would get stuck down. Uh, and so it'll be better, and then I'll do this one. Uh, so we'll just play this game for a little bit this year. It'll be fine. Um, but uh, thank you for those of you that have been praying. It's going well. I'm healing. Diana's given me the, the rules. Can't do anything with it, Kelly. Not even a little. She said, there's an anecdotal evidence that this will make me have to do it again. So... You can take it up with her. (laughs) Nothing. Um, (laughs) All right. So, uh, in 1975, 1975, for some of you, that's a long time ago. (laughs) For others of us, you know, it's not as long. Anyway, in 1975, Pepsi-Cola invited Americans to take the Pepsi challenge. Let your taste decide. Take the Pepsi challenge. In shopping malls across the country, people would take blind sip taste tests of both beverages, Pepsi and Coke. Now, before I go any farther, how many of you are brand loyal? All right, all right, all right. How many of you are Coke people? Or Diet Coke, that's included. Just got like half the room, more hands. All right. And how many of you are Pepsi people? Pepsi, okay. Yeah, hey, 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 we're not, we're not, we're not trying to divide the body. But they would take a blind sip of both beverages, then identify this is the one I liked best. They would then reveal the bottles as to which one they had, they had tasted and they had liked best, and guess which one won? Oh, Pepsi. Pepsi, by a landslide. This was a problem for Coke, and it became the backbone of Pepsi's advertising for the next, I don't know, seems now we're going on 50 years, <laughs> that people actually prefer the taste of Pepsi. That's what they say. Well, what you might not know is within 10 years, by 1985, Pepsi, or Pepsi had been steadily gaining on Coke in the market share. As a matter of fact, Coke was losing in grocery stores. 
Where Coke was still winning is that they had more fast food and restaurant deals where you couldn't get Pepsi. And so they continued to lead the market share. But they knew they were, they were floundering. And so in 1985, Coke came up with a great idea. The answer from Coke headquarters in Atlanta became one of the biggest marketing gaffes in the history of the food industry. On April 23rd, 1985, they introduced, Coca-Cola announced, New Coke. <laughs> they had changed the formula. They, were, they had discontinued Coke Classic, Coca-Cola Classic with the script. And now they were selling New Coke that could compete with Pepsi-Cola in taste tests. I told you the date, April 23rd, 1985. There were 400,000 letters of protest that poured in <laughs> from furious customers. The clamor was so loud, I, April 23rd, that by July 11th, that's less than three months, they made a formal apology. <laughs> As a company, they called a press conference, made a formal apology, and went back to the classic formula. Yeah, oh yeah, be happy, Coke supporters. There's something really amazing about that that I want to come back to here in a little bit. And I promise this all works together, this all ties in. I realized I was on some pain meds while I wrote some of this. <laughs> but I've read it since coming off of them, and I really think it still holds together. All right? So just trust me here. For now, though, I want to go to the Bible. And with that in mind, I want to read from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. It's the tradition of our family to stand during the reading of the Word. So if you are willing and able, while I read these 10 verses from John chapter 4, please stand. The Bible says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Heavenly Father, today we ask for living water. We ask for what only you can provide, what only you can give. Father, we give ourselves to you. 
We ask that you would speak today for your children are listening. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Don't, don't draw the comparison to which one of Coke or Pepsi is the living water. <laughs> I'm not trying to change your beverage preferences. <laughs> but in, for in the first nine verses, which we just read ten verses together, but in the first nine, you get the setup of the story. Jesus had to go through Samaria in order to get to where he was going. Now, the truth is he didn't really have to. Because there's a well-worn path where most Jews didn't want to travel through Samaria. They would go over the Jordan, go down, and then come across the Jordan. And that way they could skip through that northern area known as Samaria. They didn't have to go through it. Jesus had to go through it. The only reason we can figure that Jesus had to go through it is because Jesus wanted to meet this lady. That's the only reason you would say Jesus had to do this. Because she's the one that he has to speak to. And you would say, why her? I don't know. Why me? Why any of us? But Jesus says, we've got to go through there. And of course, you realize it's not an accident. And and as I thought about this, I was stunned by this. What if Jesus just might have a compelling need to go to people that I might avoid? That it was a standard practice for Jews at this time to simply avoid Samaria altogether, go around it, and come back into where they were more comfortable. Standard practice to avoid folks. What if Jesus says, we've got to go through there because Jesus has a compelling need to go to people that you might want to avoid? When they get there, He sits down next to a well, thirsty and tired. Now, since the dawn of history, cities have been built because of their proximity to water. The well is the most essential necessity, the most essential necessity in every town. You've got to have access to water. Life can't exist without it. And so, here's here's the deal. Joey, everyone goes to the well. Kings... Servants, shepherds, doctors, sheep, patients, commoners, everyone needs water. Isn't it just like God to meet us at the place where we all have a need? That God came to meet us at the place that connects us and unites us. Everyone gets thirsty. God didn't stay in the temple or any other place that has proven to divide us. God came to the well. God sits at the well because sooner or later, everyone was going to have to come to the well. And at this time, according to verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now we find out in verse 6 that it was at noon that she comes to draw water. It was typically a woman's task to draw water, but they usually came earlier and they usually came as a group. She had chosen to be alone and stay alone. I can tell you this, she's not looking for a conversation. But Jesus decides that he is. And it's worth noting that this is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with anyone in your Bible. 
Jesus says, will you give me a drink? He's thirsty. By the way, this is the only time Jesus is going to say he's thirsty, uh, uh, except for that one time on the cross. But asking her for a drink is problematic. Okay, look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman says to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Okay, you're a man. I'm a woman. I don't know you. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Which is not just a racial difference. It is also a religious difference. Okay, so, so we're going to go ahead and say gender, race, and religion. Those are three pretty, pretty common barriers that you're supposed to kind of play nice publicly. And Jesus just stomps right through all three of those barriers in order to talk to this lady. Um, because here's the deal. Jesus is willing to break any barrier to reach the lost. Okay, he... He decides he wants to talk to her, so he talks to her. And they have a good conversation about living water. Jesus begins the conversation by asking for water. But now the conversation shifts in verse 10. Look at it again. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the conversation began with Jesus saying, will you give me a drink? Now the conversation has shifted to Jesus saying, I would have provided you a drink if you had known and asked. Living water is one of those words, one of those phrases in Scripture that kind of has levels of meaning. Right? Like, on the one instance, she hears living water, and what does she think? She thinks running water, water that looks alive, water that's animated. And if you're talking about a well, there's one place you can get running water in a well, the spring, which is way down, which is why she says, uh, this is a really deep well, you, gotta, you don't even have a bucket. Like, how are, how are you going to get to the living water? But living water is one of those words that what Jesus means, we, and we know this because we've had 2,000 years to study this. <clears throat> Jesus doesn't mean running water. Jesus means the gift that only God can give. Amen. Right? Here's the deal. The living water is a gift, not a reward. The living water is a gift. Now, you have a requirement. <clears throat> if you had only known who it was you were talking to and asked me, I would have given you the gift. It's a gift, not a reward. You got to know who it is and you got to ask. Right? That seems to be what he's saying. 
Okay, but it's a, it's a gift, not a reward. This is something you can't get yourself. She doesn't realize, even though she says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get the living water? She doesn't realize the true nature of her thirst, that she's looking for relief in all the wrong places, no matter how much sense they make. After all, thirsty people go towards wells. So she asks him a question, verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock? By the way, if you're looking for that verse, that passage in your Bible in your Old Testament, we don't have it. That's, this is local flair. All right, this is there. You should see this spot in our town. She says, okay, you don't have... A bucket to draw with, but you're going to get the living water. What Jacob's well is deep. Are you greater than Jacob? Now, what could Jesus have said? Yes, I am. Could have just answered, yeah. But instead, he tells her the source of the living water and the nature of the living water. Look at what happens. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The things of this world don't last, he tells her. That there is a natural well with natural water, Jacob's well, and there is a spiritual well with spiritual water, living water, and Jesus is Jacob's well for the spiritual water, the living water that meets every need. He's almost, and this is where it starts to come together, he's, it's almost as if he set up a taste test in front of her. And said, which water do you really prefer? The brand you're loyal to because you think this is what you're supposed to drink. Or the living water that I can offer. And, 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 and you find in verses 13 and 14 the sufficiency of Christ, that only Jesus satisfies our needs completely. The satisfaction given by Christ is internal and eternal. Oh, you like that, right? That was good preaching. Normally I would clap right there and go, preach, preacher. <laughs> but I told myself not to do that. And I remembered it right now. <laughs> I'm reminded of John chapter 7 just a few chapters later in verses 37 and 38 it says on the last and greatest day of the festival Jesus stood and said in a loud voice let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink whoever believes in me as scripture has said will have rivers of living water flow from within them Her response is great in verse 15. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming back here to draw water. Okay, if that's, if that's the nature of the water you're talking about, I want that. 
She asks for the water, but she doesn't truly know what she's asking for, right? So now we get into a really interesting conversation because Jesus says, great, go call your husband. Come back. And in verse 17, she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, oh yeah, that's right, you don't. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. She would have it's complicated as the status on her profile, (laughs) right? When it comes to relationships, like she would be like, hmm, it's a little complicated. Right? And I love that we have the audacity to think, well, back then it was way different from now. People's been people for a long time. All right, that she's got this complicated past. Now, I, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I have grown up hearing every sermon about this lady was telling me how much she was uh, a woman of ill repute, which is something the text never says. All right? Never says it. She could be a widow multiple times, and this is exactly how the story would go. Do you understand that in her culture, if she were unable to bear children, then those husbands would have reason to leave her. If she bore the wrong children, people might leave her. So don't just go assuming that she gets around. That's unfair to her. But what we do know is there's a reality that says it's complicated. And that maybe she seems to have given up the belief that marriage is the right answer for her. You see, she tells the truth, but not the whole truth. And, 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 and here's what I love. God will speak to people who are in situations. You've been in a situation. God will speak to people in situations. Not because God condones the situation, but because God loves you enough to speak into whatever situation you're in and bring you into real life. So Jesus speaks into the light, the truth of what this woman What has this woman so ashamed? You see, the Word of God doesn't just reveal God. The Word of God will reveal you too. Man, I want to clap so bad, Clint, I'm going to say it again. All right? The Word of God doesn't just reveal God. It reveals you too. There we go. Preach, preacher. Thank you. I needed to say it with a clap. That's what I'm talking about. That's when we receive. That moment where we see ourselves the way we really are and we realize that God sees us as we really are, that's the moment when we receive the ministry that changes us forever and makes us well. You see, the Word of God reveals just how much of our lives are shaped and formed between the hammer and anvil of honor and shame. 
Honor and shame. People have been people for a long time, and we've been wrestling with this honor and shame thing for a really long time because no matter what the reason is for these five husbands, she's really on the wheel and being torn apart by honor and shame. It's the same reason a man will go to work for two years after he's been fired, just dressing up, putting on his clothes, going to the park, not coming home and telling his wife that he lost his job. Because I can't tell her. Why? Honor and shame. It's why we'll let everything fall apart rather than tell the truth that we got caught in that lie. Honor and shame. And, and that right there, that anvil and that hammer are super powerful. And Jesus speaks right into it and says, this is what's got you caught. Five husbands, either by death or divorce. Either way, she's tired of the judgment that she sees in all the eyes when she goes to the public place, the well. She goes alone and she goes there for a reason at that time. So that she doesn't have to put up with the women looking at her and telling their daughters, don't be like her. And she's tired of going there and seeing the men tell their sons, you don't want to end up with someone like that. Whatever the reason, she seems to have given up on marriage. But what's amazing is that the long road to recovery and humility begins with confession and admission. And so Jesus tells her, I know that you're not with someone you're married to right now. But I know you're with someone. And so in verse 19, she says, okay, I can see that you're a prophet. You know things that you shouldn't know. Now, she's not simply deflecting. She knows and recognizes that he knows what he ought not know. So, she then decides, I'm going to ask my question. The best question I have for a representative from God. You ready? Our ancestors, verse 20, worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claimed that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Remember, he's in Samaria. Now, at the time when the kingdom split into the north and the south, Israel and Judah, in your Old Testament, the temple was in Jerusalem in Judah. So, the kings of Israel decided, we need to build our own temple here in Israel, the northern tribes, that they can use. That way, we don't have to keep crossing over into Judah just to have worship. So, we're going to build a second building just right up here, and people can worship here. Same God, just a different building. Problem is, God didn't say, I want you to build a second building. But we've not worried about what God wanted for a long time, so we're going to build the building. So they build the building. And now hundreds of years after it's been built and been used consistently, here is a lady saying, okay, can I go to church where I go to church or do I have to go down there? It's not a bad question, and it's a great deflection if you don't want to talk about it. It's complicated. 
But it's a, it's a great question. And Jesus answers it. He says, woman, believe me, there is a time coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in the truth. Jesus' answer reveals that worship's not about the location of the building, but the object of our worship, the content of our faith. It's not about the sign on the front of the building. Nor is it about the simple forms of the presentation. It's about the substance. I love the end of verse 23. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now that... That, that one's pretty good. Velma, you with me? Those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. All this time we missed it. Hold on. Wait a second. She wasn't seeking God. God is seeking her. Those are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. Who's doing the seeking? The Father's doing the seeking. God is doing the seeking. God is a seeking God from the beginning. Adam, where art thou? God is a seeking God. Praise God that God is still seeking sinners who will hear the call and worship. And, and I know people have wondered about what spirit and truth, and there's a whole sermon in that. I'll, I'll give you my shorthand. I think when he says spirit, it's a capital S, Holy Spirit. And I think when he says truth, it's a capital T, truth. And in John 14, he's going to tell you who the truth is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I think this is a Trinitarian statement where he's saying you will worship the Father in the Spirit, in the Son. Now, you, you can look it up. You can disagree. And if we're wrong, when we get to heaven, I'm not going to ask to leave. <laughs> but I, I, I think he's saying something about the nature not only of God and not only of worship but of himself. That you don't need to worry about being in the present location of that mountain or this mountain. You are in the presence of something that supersedes that. You're in the pre- Neither of those mountains would exist if I hadn't brought them into existence. God is spirit. It's a confession about the nature of God. We hear, we hear several of these. God is love. God is a consuming fire. God is spirit. You know, she missed the living water comment. She thought he meant running water. I don't think she misses this comment. 
everything he just talked about, I don't think she misses it. Listen to what she asks. The woman said, now I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain all of this. I think she's got a hunch about who she's talking to. I think she's starting to get it. And I think that Jesus says, yeah, you're on the right path. He says, yes, he will. Yes, I will. I'm the one you're talking to. What if Jesus is letting us know that God thirsts for you like you thirst for water? That God is seeking you. In verse 29, she confesses that she has heard a word. And if she hasn't seen God, that she hasn't seen herself. And then her worship's been useless. And it must have been, it may have been fun and interesting, that worship that she was doing. But it wasn't true because now she's been changed. Why would you want to worship like that if you've tasted true worship? Why would you want anything else? If you've tasted the true living water, why would you be satisfied with anyone else? Why would you want to stay brand loyal to a world with its wheels of honor and shame? (coughs) Leaving her water jar, verse 28, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She left her water dry. The reason she went to the well in the first place leaves that behind. I don't need that. I'm no longer brand loyal to that water. I've found something. I've heard a word. I've experienced the truth. And I want true worship that will change my life forever. I'm never going to be spiritually thirsty again. And she goes and becomes the first evangelist. A woman. Well, I believe that. I read all my Bible. Anyway, um, <clears throat> that was offsides. Uh, it wasn't. Anyway, so, so, so here she goes. She becomes the first evangelist. She goes and tells someone, I need you to come and meet this guy. And he told me everything I did. You know, all the stuff I hate talking about with y'all, and I never want you to bring up. That's what I'm talking to you about right now. That everything I was ashamed of in my past, I will bring up now as testimony to the one that I know, and you need to come back and meet him too. Now, you should clap for that. That was pretty good preaching. (laughs) Give God the glory because this is the gospel. Come see a man who showed me the truth about me, who called me, who changed me, who gave me my story to share. (coughs) Living water. Kenny, go ahead and bring your team up. (coughs) Jesus is the living water. It's a taste test. So, oddly enough, before they introduced the world's most hated soda, New Coke, for years in blind taste tests, before and after, for years, Coca-Cola Classic continued to lose. 
not only to Pepsi, but to New Coke. For years, you don't make a change like that overnight. For years, before and after, they kept testing it. Coke Classic continued to be the least preferred. Not just to Pepsi, but to New Coke as well. People preferred New Coke by taste, but they were undyingly loyal to their brand. And it is wild to me that people can taste it for themselves, but still not come away with a new opinion. Can you imagine someone being so loyal to their brand? Why? Because we're used to it. Because we've gotten comfortable with it. Because I've just built my life around it that this is the way it's supposed to be. And you're going to pull out the rug from me and say there's a new formula? The formula of honor and shame is awful, but I'm used to it. They wouldn't let their very own experience change the way they thought, they bought, they lived. Can you imagine someone being so stuck in their habits and ways and beliefs about how the world should be or the way that that it is or the way that it will be or must be, the way that they're used to, that they won't have their mind changed no matter what, even if they tasted it for themselves. But we're not talking about soda anymore. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? If you're ready to put yourself in the living water, if you're ready to enter into that water that Christ made alive and be baptized into him today, and say, I want to never thirst again spiritually. I don't want any of that. I don't want anything, any of the false wells that this world can offer. I don't want any of them. I want the truth. If you want the true well to be brought into the true presence of God, then I'm going to ask you to come and take on Christ in baptism while we stand and sing together. Thank you for listening to the Rochester Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Our hope is that it was a blessing to you. If you would like someone to study with or pray with, do not hesitate to reach out to us through our website, rochestercoc.org. Remember, you are loved and you are chosen.